Good morning. It's such a good morning. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. Where's Mirella? Like, that's so much better when Mirella is standing next to Brad. I get it. Uh, she's in San Francisco or something. I hope that's where she is. She hasn't been lying to me. Uh, this morning we're starting a new series uh, called Gathered and Scattered. Uh, and it's, we have another lovely ga- graphic created by Daniel Margheim. Give him a... Yeah, that was about as enthusiastic as the good morning. Yeah, and so we're spending the next uh, eight weeks talking about worship, learning to live a life of worship. Uh, the learning of that life of worship actually starts often when we get together, uh, when we get together in this place, and the practices, the things that we do when we're all together actually informs the way that we live a life of worship the rest of the time. Now, a lot of people try to like, get into camps when it comes to worship. Uh, we love to get into camps. Uh, I think if you know, there weren't other things happening in the world, people would be arguing about this on Facebook. Uh, but one camp is to say, man, like, just life is worship, dude. Like, all of it. Like, we just, like, worship all the time. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, I can do, like, Doritos, and that's, like, communion. Like, it's just life, bro. And then there's this other side that says, no, like, worship only happens when you come into a building and you sit with a group of people on a Sunday morning, and that, with the, with the songs and all, that's, like, real worship. And so people, like, kind of put it into those sort of extremes. Uh, the reality and what we hope to sort of demonstrate through this series is what, that it's both and that there's, it's not even really a tension as much as we have to do these practices on Sundays so that we would do them the rest of the week. And what we do on Sundays is actually informed by the worship that we're doing the rest of the week. Um, there's a great uh, quote here uh, that is not on my computer anymore. Anyway, it's a great quote. Uh, <laughs> the goal of our gatherings is to cultivate... Uh, this is the quote, practices uh, from our church uh, to live in the good news of the gospel every day. So these practices, just to let you know, uh, it's not just random that we do the things that we do. And so we'll be talking about each of the steps of our gathering. It's also called a liturgy, uh, which means like the work of the people or the public working of the people. Like when we get together, worship doesn't happen. Like the people up here aren't like the worshipers. Uh, we are the worshipers, right? It's our work together to adore God, to offer thanksgivings and all that. And so we create a pattern for things that we do. And what we do on Sundays is what people have been doing for thousands and thousands of years, is this pattern to instruct the rest of our lives to live the good news. Uh, And so that pattern is that we start with a call to worship, a call to adore God, uh, to adore Him for all of His power, majesty, and worthiness. And then we move into a time of confession, saying, well, we see who God is, uh, and we see who we are. And there's a big gap. There's a big gap, not from like a long time ago, there's a big gap from this morning between who God is and who I am as a person. And we confess our sins and the evil and the brokenness of the world and the brokenness that's within us. And then we move into a time of assurance, where we say, uh, Like, we confess our sins to God, but He is so quick to save and to forgive, and we live almost immediately in the good news that God has saved us. 
and forgiven us of our sins, cleansed of his sins, and is making us new. And then we do petition, which is this sort of spot that a lot of people miss, and uh, we'll do a sermon on it later, but it's what John was just doing, asking God to do something in us, asking God to transform us. And then we do the word. We like open up and we listen to what God has to say. And that's what we're doing right now. So now you can know what we're doing, uh, what this is all about. Uh, hopefully it's not listening to my voice. And then we move into time of redemption and celebration of, and communion and giving of our tithes and offering that, that God has marked us and changed us and we've heard his voice and now we're walking in this new covenant. And then we do a time of restoration where we're singing and declaring that God has made this world new and is going to make it new. And then we do a benediction where we're all sent out into the world, uh, renewed by the gospel and sent to live a life of worship. And so that's our liturgy. That's basically what we do every Sunday. Sometimes it's changed. Sometimes the songs are different, which is great. They're always different. Uh, The teaching is different. The scriptures are different. Uh, Sometimes the bread is different. But that is the story of what we're trying to accomplish each morning when we get together. And that we, as we learn how to do confession together and say, I'm messed up, we actually learn how to do that every day. Uh, And if we don't do that, we'll forget that we should do that. Uh, if we don't open the word together and read it, uh, how would we open the word and read it uh, Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday? And so that's kind of the big idea. Hopefully that did it justice. Jared will make it more compelling next week. Uh, we're also using the Psalms to teach through this series. Uh, the Psalms are God's you know, worship book to uh, the world. Uh, the Psalms are actually about people declaring their feelings and their emotions, their circumstances, their desires, their understanding of God, back to God. Uh, the largest book of the Bible is Psalms, and it's just filled with people's prayers, uh, prayers that actually show us who Jesus is, who, what God is like. Uh, Eugene Peterson says that Psalms are the equipment that we need for our souls, that you can't do life without the equipment that Psalms that the Psalms give you. And so uh, during this, these next eight weeks, I actually want to challenge us to be reading the Psalms every day. There's this really cool, simple thing that you can do where you uh, take the day of the month, like today is the 15th, right? You read Psalm 15, and then you add 30 to it, so you read Psalm 45 as well. Then you add 30 to that, which is 75. Yeah, it's good. It's good math. Uh, and so in the end, you end up reading five psalms. You, you add them up, and then you can read and pray. We've actually created a really simple guide for that, and we can give it to you electronically. Uh, and so I want to enc- encourage us. If you do that for 30 days, you will have read the entire book of psalms. And you'll have read it, and you'll have been able to turn these prayers into prayers for yourselves. And we'll learn to live a life of worship. Uh, today, though, we're talking about the first piece which is this call to worship, this call to adore God for all of his glory. Uh, It's an appeal that's made at the beginning of of services all over the world uh, for many, many years, this call to come into this place, to come into a moment where you worship God for who he is. It's also an invitation that gets played out in community almost every day of the week, or it could get played out. And every day of the week, where we ask people or we call people, well, how about we start with who God is? And we just, God on his own terms. Uh, this often looks like in our gathered places, we start with the strumming of an instrument, the like striking of a chord. Uh, and it's not just to say like, hey, everybody, let's come in and sit down now. 
It's actually really a powerful call to remember God. That what we do here is not about us, it's not about Soma, it's not about Los Angeles. What we do here is about God. And that that call is also what we get to be reminded of as we scatter our lives throughout the city, that all of that stuff is actually about God and his power and his glory and his character. And so we're going to look at Psalm 25 today. Uh, And I think that as we do that, we'll hear his voice instruct us both uh, for this moment, but also for the moments of life. Uh, And with that, I'd just like to pray for us as we embark on this new little journey, that we would become people that know and love to worship God instead of ourselves. Uh, Jesus, we are so dependent on you even to be uh, right with you and to be in your presence, to know you, that you've revealed yourself to us so perfectly in your personhood on earth. You've revealed to us so much your plan for the world, uh, your desire for the world, and your life, and your death, and your resurrection. Jesus, I pray as we come to these psalms that we would Uh, that we would find you, Jesus, that we would discover who you are and you would inform and instruct and actually equip our souls to worship you, Uh, to see you, to to declare uh, your majesty, to, to walk in a life of confession and assurance and repentance and all of these things, that you would, yeah, transform us as a people. Uh, We, like all people, Uh, have a very serious problem with worship. So we confess that, knowing that we uh, completely fall short. And we worship uh, things made and sold for $2.99 more than we worship the creator of the universe. Uh, We know that we have a problem. Uh, And we come and we ask for you to restore in us a heart that adores you and you alone that you would be, uh, as we were just singing, the one thing that we ask, the one thing that we seek. That you would do that uh, within us as we read your word right now, but also in the next eight weeks as we read your psalms together and privately, as we do it discussions in our groups, as we uh, come and listen to your teaching. Uh, thank you for being the one that changes us. And it is good, and we're thankful. Amen. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The world was wild and waste. Uh, There's a great Hebrew phrase. It's called tohu vavohu. Uh, It's awesome. Uh, It's like poetry. The Bible begins with that. The beginning is wild and waste. Darkness hovered over the waters of the deep. There was nothing there. And then God spoke. And began to form and fashion a world. You know, causing mountains to like crash out of the seas, separating the oceans, creating, you know, a universe in which the solar system uh, impacts the wind and the waves themselves. He created a, like plants that could be reproduced. He created this thriving, beautiful, glorious masterpiece. Like a sculptor who puts their hands in the clay or a person who grabs a paintbrush or sits down at a typewriter. He just created Uh, He created out of passion, out of desire, out of love, all to actually declare his amazing glory. It's almost as if you could say, did he just create it to prove that he could? Just to say, like, I can do this. I can do this. 
And I can do it for, for love and for my own glory and my own sake. The God creates and fashions the world is the beginning. And then in that thriving, flourishing world, he, he forms humanity. Getting down really close, breathing into their nostrils, forming man out of dirt, creating uh, husbands and wives, putting them together so that they would be in his image. He says, let us make them in our image. And then they live a life where they're given this awesome purpose of cultivating and creating just as God had done. They get this amazing purpose to steward the world and to, to give creatures names, giving creatures even more significance to have a name. Like, what a thing. To be called an elephant or a rhino or whatever. And they were given this role to thrive as humans, to love one another, to make babies, to make uh, homes, and walk with God in the cool of the day. Uh, I'm certain that the Garden of Eden had to have been somewhere like around here, right? I mean, it's like always the cool of the day, except for like the last two weeks. But God created the world and created humans, and everything was very good and very holy. That there was this, even in a world that was wild and waste before, what we had now was something that was separate, something other, something uh, with a purpose, holy, good, very good. And then these humans, uh, in their confusion, in their rebellion, in their wickedness, decided, what if we were God too? What if we could do some things to become God ourselves? Faced with the choice and with the temptation to do uh, what was good in their own eyes, they decided to do what was good in their own eyes. And this is the part of the story that we all like resonate with. That's like, well, that sounds like Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, Monday morning, Tuesday afternoon. That sounds like every email that's exchanged at work. People just doing whatever is good for them in whatever circumstance. People accomplishing whatever they want to accomplish. Putting themselves above whoever they want to put themselves above. And that is the breaking of the world. Uh, To call it a fall is kind of silly because it's like, did humanity just trip on a on a stump somewhere? Did we just stub our toe? Uh, Truman, uh, two weeks ago, or yeah, a week ago, was like bombing down this hill on a scooter. Uh, He had a helmet on. It's okay. And then he totally ate it on like the 11th one, and he was like going as fast as he could. Is that what happened to humanity? We were just like thriving, and then all of a sudden like a rock came out of nowhere, and we tripped and scraped our bruises. It's like, no, you can't like look at the world or look at within yourself and know that like that's all that happened. Like we we were doing great and we just sort of had a misstep. It's like no, humanity decided to do what was good and right for themselves. They decided to be God for themselves. They tried to become more holy, like we could separate ourselves from God and then who could we be? We could be like you know, masters of our own domain. And that's what they got. And that's what we got. Shame and guilt. Masters of our own domain means that we're super uh, insecure and embarrassed about who we are and how we've been made. We're embarrassed about how other people are and how they've been made. We have to decide that we're better than other people just to prove that we deserve the resources in the world. And death and evil and sin is now the story, at least it seems, in this rebellion. The garden that was created so beautiful is now 
a group of people wandering around in the desert that eventually begins to kill each other, begin to build cities to show how awesome they are. They begin to do so much wickedness that the world, it looks like, is just going to break apart based on who we are. Which we also know what that's like, right? Doesn't it feel like the world could break apart at any moment? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, like, we could just all be, like, blown up tomorrow. Like, it's breaking at the seams. This is the story of the world. But God decides that he'll choose a family, and he would, he would uh, choose a guy, have him leave his family, uh, wander in the desert. He would make that one guy, Abraham, into this amazing uh, blessing for the world. That through this guy, and through his wife, and through their children, and their children's children, and all of that, the world would be put back together. The craziest, like, most bizarre plan uh, anyone could hatch. I think. Like, it wasn't, well, I'm going to create a family or a military, or I'm going to create uh, a constitution, or I'm going to create checks and balances for these people. I'm going to create a free market, and that'll fix the world. God says, no, I'm going to pick a family. I'm going to use them in all their dysfunction. Use them in all their adultery, all their sexual misgivings, all of their gride and... Or, <laughs> gride. Pride and greed. Uh, or gride, that's new, let's use that a lot. And this family did just that. They lived a life that was sort of separate, sort of other, sort of holy from the rest of the society. And they grew, they became a lot of people, they got enslaved, they got free from slavery, they you know, uh, created a nation by God's power and God's strength. The other nations feared them, and yet they wanted to be just like everybody else, and they sort of devolved into that. A nation just like everybody else. A family just like everybody else's family. But all the while, there's still this promise that through them, God will make the world right. He will bless the world. And then, uh, in a manger, in a stable, amongst some hay, uh, God enters the world himself. All the while, the people began to hope for a hero of some kind. Like a person who could uh, come and mark, like, the universe. Uh, a hero with some sort of special power that could live uh, apart from the rest of the world that's completely broken and shattered. That someone would come and by their sheer will and power, this hero would, would mold the world back together. They would create some sort of fissure in our broken vertebrae and we could do it. And that, that, that hero apparently is born like, amongst the poor uh, to, a, to a couple who weren't even married when she got pregnant. And this divine hope of God arriving. Jesus became uh, that hero, though. But it didn't look how people wanted. It actually looked like someone declaring, uh, making things right. It looked like him saying, the kingdom of God is so close you can touch it, repent, and believe, and experience the world made right. It looked like him going to evil and bringing it out of people. Freeing people from the demonic powers of this world. Look like him going to the unclean and the sinful and making them pure and clean and holy. 
looked like him partying with people and going to meals and eating and drinking and laughing and telling stories, all pointing back to who God was. He, he commanded the oceans and the seas and even the fish he made climb into nets so that they, fish could die and get made into you know, fish and chips. He did all of these things and it looked like within this person the kingdom of God was at hand. Like God was getting what he wanted. The garden that the world began at is alive in this person. And he's like the most miraculous gardener who could fashion any broken, dirty, destroyed, weed-ridden thing. He could make it a beautiful garden in any person, any family, in any place. He was the hero. The hero that people longed for. And also he became the hero that died. The hero that uh, a few political adversaries, a few religious leaders and powerful uh, people could just take his life away. But even as he did that, he told all of his friends and all of his followers, no one can take my life down. I'm giving it up. Why I'm giving? Because I came for a sick and dying world and I would die for the sickness of this world. And there Jesus is, abandoned on a cross. Dying uh, a wretched, you know, terrible death. Uh, like most death. You know, I, my grandfather and grandmother both died in their living room in hospice care. And I'll just say this, like, uh, I don't know if there's a scale that we should put on death. Because it's all kind of messed up. It's as messed up as it was in the garden. It's been messed up all these years. And Jesus dies. But then he comes out of a grave, fully alive, fully God, fully man, and he comes as this picture of the hero arrived, but the hero who's accomplished what he will need to accomplish. The death and whatever happened in that garden, whatever happened in the world, was being made new, was being restored, was being made bright. And, and the, the person who puts themselves in the grave and then walks themselves out of the grave is the person you can hope in to bring about a restored world, a restored humanity. It's as if the axes of the world were put right suddenly. And with all of that in mind, Psalm 95 says this, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hands are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands form the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, and the sheep of His hand. Come, let us sing. That whole story, and then this, O come, let us sing, let us say. This is the call to worship. The call to invoke what God has done, and what He is. The call is pretty obvious, but it's actually important. We need to be reminded of God. The call of worship 
is to allow ourselves to understand once again that there is this profound mystery in the world and we are not in charge of it. There's a profound uh, curiosity that must exist of this expanding universe and we have no dominion over it. The mountains and the seas come up and go down and they're His and He made it. We need to be reminded about God. We need to be reminded about the things of God. We need to say the things about God. The the reminding comes from our singing, from our saying, from our making of noise. We actually, we need a choir master, which, FYI, you guys, that's that's your new name, John. You're a choir master. Uh, We need a choir master who comes to us and says, let's sing and let's say stuff about God. Often we, we get to sing like chants, like in soccer stadiums. We get to sing our school song with like pride and funny motions and things. Maybe that's just my college. Maybe it's yours too. We're used to that sort of singing. We can sing, uh, if there's thousands of people with us, we can sing lyrics about uh, some you know, vague affection of a man to a woman, and we can do that together. We can chant all of Beyonce's latest tunes, right? Like, this is so wonderful. Or, or maybe we uh, you know, drive along the coast and we listen to the top 40 and our you know, con- convertible is down. And we're just like singing as we drive, you know, past Zuma Beach, like these silly songs. But when it comes to singing about God, we don't know if we should do it. It becomes, well, do I feel enough for this right now? Do I desire this enough right now? Huge disparity, right? We can sing songs the same songs every day from Thanksgiving to January 20th, because you people do that, about fictional characters who are not real, who bring us gifts, or who lead sleighs with shining nose, but we're not sure if we can sing the same song about Christ coming out of the grave. The call to worship is so important because we need to be reminded and push back against the chaos of this world, but this chaos that we're bent on worshiping itself. And singing and making noise is how God has chosen to remind people about what he's like. It's amazing. Uh, In the Old Testament, there are... uh, Two sermons. One is the entire book of Deuteronomy, so that's a good sermon. Uh, And then the other is by Moses as well. But even with Moses himself, what he does most often, this guy, this great leader, is lead his people in songs and writing of songs. It's how God shapes his people. It's how he forms his people. Come, let us do the work of the people and say out loud and make noise about God. And notice too that just the unspecific nature and the vastness of this call to worship. It's not, 
uh, a call to like come and like let's say the things that God did for us this morning. Like let's worship the things God did for us. It's actually no. We just come and we worship Him uh, for His work, His power, His almost standaloneness above all other gods. That He's on a on a chart unlike anybody else. It's you know let's come and worship Him because He's the Rock of Salvation. The rock, not even our rock. He's just, that's who he is. He is the rock of salvation. He's the great God. He's the great king. All of this is his. And here we come, and here we're reminded or challenged by the choir master, by the writer of the psalm, to sing and just make noise about God. Just God alone. Songs of praise about His nature. Not about what He's done for us, but just Him for His own sake and worth. We just make noise with God. Noise of joy, noise of celebration. And I love that it's noise. Like, because I've been around some people, and I am one of those people, who when I, when I like try to get it to come out of my vocal cords, it's just noise. But it's a joyful one. It does not matter. He doesn't come and tell us to do perfect, perfect tune. He just says, come into his presence and make a joyful noise to him. Bring it to him. Say it out loud. And there is this power to saying things out loud. Uh, if you can remember telling your first you know, boyfriend or girlfriend in high school you know, how you loved them and you would never abandon them or leave them. Some of you got married to that person, which is cool. Uh, I did not. But I can remember, like, once you put those words out, like, they're there. Also, what we say out loud has this remarkable power about what we believe in here. That there's something that happens in our lungs, in our vocal cords, in our minds, when we say something out loud, and we put it out there in the open, that instructs what we believe in those lungs in those vocal cords. Often, I think, uh, just a little tidbit into my own story, uh, I never really began to read the Bible and enjoy it until I started reading it out loud. And it sounds weird, I know. I don't really, I can't pray silently. Uh, I have to pray out loud. It's much to the annoyance of some other people. Uh, like my children. My mom used to do this thing growing up where she would just randomly pray out loud in our minivan. And now I am that person. <laughs> and we would tell her, Mom, you got to give us like a heads up. And, I, and my mom would say, I pray without ceasing. I pray without ceasing. And that's now me. <laughs> it's not to come and observe other people making noise. The invitation is come, let's make some noise about God. Let's take these thoughts in our heads and put them out there. Even timidly, like we do when we're trying to put pen to paper and write, you know, a magnum opus of some kind. We put it out there with joy. The call of worship is also a summons to a king. It summons us to a God without any trappings or without any focus on ourselves, but just God, the king. That he is God and that we are not. That, that we are sheep, we're his people in his pasture, but he is the God and he even owns me. Such a better king 
than LeBron James, right? Even though he's here. Uh, they didn't let me preach last week because that's like all I would have talked about. But it is remarkable, you know, a few days ago, he tweeted out that he might show up to Culver City, Blaze Pizza, which is real fu- Like, up until then, I thought, Los Angeles is like too cool for school. Like, if you want to get people excited, it's going to have to be really awesome. Like, pe- like it's going to have to be the best show, the best concerts, the most amazing laser light, because we're like serious city people. We're like the second largest city in America. People look to us for what's cool and what's right. But man, you like tweet out that you're going to give some free pizza somewhere in the middle of the afternoon, like hundreds of people show up, like as if we were in this tiny town somewhere in Texas, like, did you hear? Billy Bob's giving out free ribs. Let's go over there. <laughs> like, we are those people. Just so, let's, just so we're clear, like Los Angeles, we are not as cool as we think we are. Someone offers us a free pizza this size, and we're like, yeah, I want to be there. But he's the king, LeBron, of L.A., who said he was going to show up to pizza, and we clamored to get, like, people got there early, like at 7 a.m., and, the, and hoping that he would be there at 2 p.m. And then people stayed late, like 6.37, like, no, I think LeBron's still coming. I'm going to see him. And he did not come. <laughs> but this, it says... Let's make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise, for he is the Lord. He is a great God and a great king above all gods. And we aren't sure, like, what we should do with our time. Free pizza, a sighting of a six foot seven, two ninety pound, you know, you get that here, just a few inches shorter. (laughs) It's a summons to a king to, with our voices, with our hearts, to acknowledge the personhood and the glory of God. It's also an appeal. He says, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before our maker. Let us come and put ourselves in our proper position. That he is God and we are not. And this, I just want to say, is who you are if you say that you're a Christian. I know that it's very popular right now to say that, you know, if someone asks you if you're a Christian, to say that you're a Christ follower or you follow Jesus, which is awesome. That's to say, like, he is, you know, the ruler of everything, and wherever he's going, I'm going. Whatever he tells me to do, I'm going to do. But we are also worshipers of Jesus, Like, we put that line in the sand, and then we've crossed it, and we said, we worship a person who was born 2,000 years ago, who was God, who commanded all of these things, who died on a cross, who rose again. I worship them. Like, I bow down. If they came into the room, I would, like, drop my head to the ground and worship them as if they were the most important creature in the entire universe, because I believe He is. That's what it means to be a Christian. It says, come... Let us bow down and worship Him. And all the while, in this whole first seven verses, it's vague. Like, it's not about worshiping Him for what He's done with your personality. It's not worshiping Him for what He does through community. It's not worshiping Him for 
you know, the paycheck that came in the mail. All of those things are great graces of God. But this is saying the call to worship is simply, He is God, and so we worship Him. And I would challenge us, too, that if we can only see and speak about God through our own circumstances and how He showed up to them, then maybe we're not speaking about God at all. Or maybe what we do is we worship God through like the veil that is our own needs and desires. And this, I think, leads us to our profound problem with worship. The very end of verse 7, he says, uh, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation, and I said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. I love this psalm very much. In this verse, he's, he, all of it's about us making noise. And at the very end of verse 7, he says, But today, if you're hearing his voice, don't harden your hearts. Like, oh, I thought it was about us, like, creating some sort of ruckus here, like in our lives. But he says, no, if you hear his voice, who said anything about God speaking? Who said anything about him concerned with us and talking to us? The psalmist says that. In fact, I think it's hard, often it's hard to hear the voice of God in our lives because we're really just like, want stuff for ourselves, you know? It's like, I've been praying to God about what I'm supposed to do with my job and stuff, where I'm supposed to, like, go to school, or what I'm... But really, like, all I want to do is, like, I'm praying to my job and career and these decisions. It's hard to hear His voice when we're like the people at Meribah. And I know we all know that reference, because, no, we don't. But this, this, it's, it's such a great psalm because he throws in this place and this name, which for us, would, like, for all of those people, would just invoke such a like, bad taste in their mouth. Like, just such a bitter, sweet, like, gnarly taste. To be like, oh yeah, I remember what went down at Maribel. It's like, whatever happened at the OK Corral, don't be like those people. Which is a tombstone reference. Uh, but what this person is referencing is not tombstone. Uh, the psalm, God is reminding us of what happens in Numbers chapter 20. Uh, and we won't read it all out loud, but we'll just talk about it quickly. At Meribah, the people of Israel had left Egypt. They had seen God uh, conquer the most powerful empire at the time. They were enslaved. They were abused. They were experiencing all of this injustice. God hears their cries comes to them, rescues them, uses Moses, uses Aaron, uses this lady, Miriam. They do this uh, miraculous job of letting God do work, and then they walk out of Egypt. 
They walk into the desert. In the middle of the desert, they come to this incredible uh, sea mass or water mass, a river, a lake. They can't get past it. And then uh, the armies of Egypt, they've changed their mind. Pharaoh's going to come and just wipe them out, you know, on the outskirts of town and let them get buried by the desert sands, you know. And there they are, and, and Moses just sort of cries out. He's like, well, let's see what God's going to do. And then uh, God splits the seas open. And they walk across on dry land. Pharaoh and his armies go into the river, and then God causes the river to collapse on them. And then these people that were just slaves, like hours before, get to look up at the washing up on the shore, their own abusers conquered. Like, and they take some of their jewelry and stuff that they find on the, the shore there, and they move forward. Uh, this is like the people of Israel. And a lot of times, like, that's where the story stops for us. Like, they defeated it. Uh, God gives them his commands, his covenant. He, he makes this amazing covenant with them. They break the covenant. We don't have time to get into all of that. But then they're just wandering around the desert. Uh, and it's hot. And they don't have any water. And eventually God comes and, and actually speaks through Moses and, and uses Moses and water gushes out of a rock. These people drink the water. And they're like, oh yeah, God is good again. I remember that. Yeah, God's good. He like rescued us because he gave us water. We were thirsty and he gave us some water. And all of our cattle got to drink water. But then they wander around the desert some more. And then uh, they come to this place of Meribah. And there was no water for any of the people. And so they got themselves together to give a complaint to Moses. Like, you brought us out here. We're in the desert. This is time number two. We need some water. We would have, they said it again, they said we would have been better off if we would have just stayed in Egypt. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to this evil place? It's good to compare and contrast. Like before, they were like slaves, where like as soon as their children were born, they were killed. Now they're in a desert, and they're like, why did you bring us to this evil place? Like, well, God rescued you from one evil place. Why did you bring us to this evil place? There's no grain or figs or vines. There's no pomegranates, a world without pomegranates. There's no water to drink. So they make this complaint, this grumbling to God. And they grumble to Moses and Aaron. And so they went away, Moses and Aaron, they went and they spoke to the Lord. And they said, uh, the people are thirsty. And God gives Moses instructions. He says, go out there and say this. I'll read it for us. Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron and your brother, or Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water so that you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. So this is amazing. The people are grumbling. They're complaining. And God says, yeah, just go out there and talk to a rock and let the people like drink some water. But what Moses did is he took the staff and he went out to the people and he got them all together. And this is what Moses said, uh, which sounds like me talking to my children. Here now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? It also sounds like kind of like the beginning of a circus or street performance, right? All right, gather around. 
Would you like me to do something spectacular for you? You, you know, nincompoops. <laughs> uh, and the Lord said to Moses, or, <laughs> and he says, um, gather around. And he took this rock, or he took the staff, and he struck the rock with it twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and so did their livestock. But then the Lord said to Moses, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. And these are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. It's a story of bickering, quarreling, grumbling people just focused on getting pomegranates and figs and vine and grain and water. It's the story of their leader who went out and tried to like show off to them, try to put them in their place, try to hit the rock, and just sort of get them to believe in who he was. And that's why Moses isn't allowed to go into the promised land. He spent his whole, you know, half of his life getting these people to this place. And he wasn't able to enter into that rest. Grumbling, uh, which is Meribah, is the outward expression that you've been worshiping God all along for what he can give you. And when everything's going well, there's no grumbling. There's no complaining. Like my children, when they're watching a, you know, Frozen for the 180th time, they don't complain about, like, my brother's hitting me, my brother's touching me, because they're just, like, zoomed in. As soon as the movie stops and they don't get what they want, they begin to complain. We are like that. And the call to worship is a call to interrupt our grumbling. And I know we all come into this today thinking, I wish I could pay for this. I wish I could get that. I wish these people would get on my side. Um, I wish my spouse would be nice to me. I wish all of these things. God, if you could do it, I could worship you again. But we all know that that sort of grumbling worship leads people to worship for a moment, like a brevity instant of like, oh, God showed up and sent that check in the mail. So now I can worship him. The next day, it's like, I wish I had a new toothbrush. I wish I could have pomegranates. It's never enough because there's this bottomless pit of desire for ourselves. Because all along, we've been worshiping God because of, he gives us what he wants, not simply because he is God and worthy of glory. And so this psalm is saying, do not be like those people of Meribah invoking this bitterness, this terrible moment, and saying, it's hard to come in and make a joyful noise and declare who God is when really all you're thinking about are your problems, your spouses, your kids, your bank accounts, your own personality, your own emotions, your own attitudes, your own idols that we're consumed with our own survival. I think that's what's amazing about this story of Meribah that they really did need water or they would die. And 
often we find ourselves in places where the circumstances are truly trying. Like, we're visiting people in the hospital that we don't know if they will live. But this psalm is saying, you worship God because he's God, not because of what happens in the diagnosis room, not because of what happens with your employer or with your successes or whatever awards you get. You just worship God on the merits of him being God. He's the only one that is God. And that is why we worship him. And so this call to worship that we start every service with is sort of our stand against what Augustine called the inward curvature of the soul. That we take everything that God gives us and we just pour it onto ourselves. Uh, that, we, that we consume these things over and over again for our own selves. The call to worship, more plainly, is just our refusal to continue to be self-centered and self-focused and selfish, which we all are. And we start our services to remind ourselves, we are not God. We are not the center of the universe. And that is what Jesus offers at the very end. He says, if you quarrel and if you grumble, and if you worship in this way, you will not enter my rest. That's the end of the psalm. There will be no rest for you. There will be no peace. God will continue to show himself holy. He'll continue to take care of you. He will continue to, to be with you. But you will not find rest. The call to worship is not an invocation of God's presence with us as much as it is a refusal to be consumed with our own presence and to acknowledge his presence all along. The call to worship, lastly, is just a call to conversion all over again. And we make that appeal to each other when we make this loud noise and this ruckus together. We're, we're saying in one voice, like, let's be converted again to God being God and us not being God. Let's pray. Thank you for this old, old story, God. An old story that sounds like our own. We thank you for this call to come and sing, to come and make noise because you are God and you're the king over all kings. You are the God above all gods. God, as we enter this time of communion and confession and uh, continued worship and response and making noise, I pray that we will uh, cease to be the focus, that you would allow our souls actually be, to be bent towards you and you alone, that we would see you in our present circumstances and we would rejoice in you and who you are, regardless of what you can do to fix them. I also pray that we would uh, be converted into your kingdom once more this morning. That we would uh, do the work of every Christian, which is to say, you are God and you're the only rock of salvation and we are not. We cannot save ourselves. None of these other things can save us except for you. Help some of us too to believe that and make that for the first time. That you are God and you are God alone. Thank you.
for being a God who is with us, who uses our grumbling to expose how holy you are. Amen.